Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast, where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you so much for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? I'm doing pretty good. I'm a little tired because I've had a pretty busy day. Went over to my great aunt's and learned how to make a recipe called Krautbruschken um, with her and my mom. So that was really cool. It's basically like a pizza pocket, but it's not pizza inside. Um, it's like a hamburger, sauerkraut, cabbage blend. It's very much like the kind of thing that you associate as like peasant food across Europe. <laughs> in that, like, no, really, like, like a lot of like the delicacies and like national like dishes of a lot of cultures are like what the peasant food is because you're finding creative ways to make good tasting food with like very little resources. So like in this case, like you made bread and you, you stuffed it with ground beef and you like fried it basically. And now you have a tasty treat. It's like very much like a thing where when you you're eating it, you're like, yeah, I can see how someone came up with this. (laughs) Right. In a way that like sometimes when you're eating something, you're like, how did anyone think to do this? This is more obvious. Yeah. But it, it's good, mm-hmm. and um, I can't remember the last time I had one, so biting into one, it was very, uh, you know, like you have those, like, memories come flooding back, mm. and you're like, oh, yes. Uh, so that was very nice. Um, ben, how's your day? Pretty good. Um, my days have been pretty busy lately. I have a lot going on with work. We have a lot going on sort of in our, like, home lives uh here at castle scream scene and uh you know a lot of just like things to be done um so today i kind of like let a lot of that fall to the wayside and just like focused on the things i need to get done um rather than worrying about some of the events that are like currently going on in our lives um which have taken up a lot of our time lately yeah um we don't have to get into it on the podcast But um, we may be moving again. Right. That's all we'll say. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Poor Castle Scream scene. (laughs) Back on the road again. Yeah. Uh, But what are we watching this week? Well, this week, Sarah, we are watching The Screaming Skull from 1958, directed by Alex Nichol. The story of this movie is very much tied up with its director, uh, Alex Nichol. He was born in 1916 in Ossining, New York. He studied at the Fegan School of Dramatic Arts and joined Maurice Evans Theater Company and making his stage debut in 1939. His career as an actor was interrupted by World War II, after which he returned to Broadway. In 1948, he was admitted to the Actors Studio under Ilya Kazan. In 1950, he was scouted by Universal and signed to contract and started appearing in like small roles in movies. His first lead role was in 1953 in a film directed by Lee Rolam Sholem. Uh, and after that experience, Nickel asked to be removed from his contract at Universal. Oh my gosh. Because uh, it was just such a bad experience where he said like, you know, if these are the kinds of films that I'm going to be like starring in, then I would rather not star in films. Wow. Um, Or perhaps he was like, I can do this better. hmm. So as a freelance actor, um, he became known as a character actor, sort of bouncing around, appearing in all kinds of movies, um, with his most notable role being as one of the villains in Anthony Mann's The Man from Laramie in 1955, which stars Jimmy Stewart. It's a Western. Okay. Nickel believed that his Hollywood career was not like progressing as he would have liked it to. So he returned to Broadway where he starred as Brick in Ilya Kazan's production of Tennessee Williams' play Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Nickel was unhappy with the roles he'd been getting. And so he decided to try directing, uh, believing that he had learned enough about it watching his own directors over the years to do it. Sure. Back in Hollywood... Nickel would team up with writer-producer John Newble, and they would decide to 
basically do what all the other independent producers were doing in Hollywood at the time, which is make a cheap horror movie and then see if you can parlay that success into something else down the line. Okay. Um, And in this case, they decided to make a movie version of The Screaming Skull, which is an adaptation, though they don't credit it in the credits or like use that in any of the marketing, which is strange given that like horror movies tend to really um, promote if they're an adaptation because of that idea that it adds like class and legitimacy. For sure. So I don't really know anything about the short story or what its deal is. So why don't you tell me about it? Okay. Well, the short story comes from the pen of a writer named Francis Marion Crawford, though he would go by F. Marion Crawford for his um, author name. Nom de plume. Nom de plume. Um, sorry. Uh, well, that's French. He was born in Italy, so I wonder what the Italian nom de plume is. Mm. Um, so he was born in 1854 to American sculptor Thomas Crawford and his wife Louisa Cutler Ward in Italy. Now, Francis was pretty passionate about school. Um, I think in today's world, we would describe him as a professional student, Mm. um, just consistently always in schools, um, just always wanting to learn. In total, he went to like six schools, including Cambridge and the University of Rome. At 25, he traveled to India to continue studying Sanskrit, and then he would head to Harvard in the U.S. to continue those studies. He supported himself and his schooling through his family funds, um, but also doing some work on the side as an editor and um, submitting some materials to journals. When in the U.S., he would stay with his uncle Samuel Ward and aunt Julia Ward Howe. Uh, Samuel Ward might be a name familiar to some of our American listeners because he is, I guess, a prominent lobbyist in like the late 1800s and kind of a big deal. And they encouraged him to like, you know, find a career, Hmm. like stop going to school, Um, especially because like in the research I could find about Francis, um, I couldn't find any like degrees. Mm, (laughs) Just a lot of schools. Exactly. Uh, So they're like, hey, why don't you try getting a real job like as an opera singer? (laughs) (laughs) Francis gives it a go, and in 1882, a conductor at the Boston Symphonic Orchestra was like, you can't carry a tune. Mm. Go try something else. So with that vocation closed, his uncle suggested, well, Francis, you, you seem to really like writing, so why don't you give that a shot and write about your time in India? So that year, Francis wrote and submitted a fiction novel titled Mr. Isaacs to his uncle's publishing contacts in (laughs) New York. Um, And it got published and was an immediate success. And he even followed that up with the novel Dr. Claudius in 1883. With some success under his belt, Francis moved back to Italy and continued to write. He would meet and fall in love with his wife, Elizabeth Bourdain, in 1884. And throughout the rest of the 80s, he would specialize kind of in novels, fiction novels. Then in the 1890s, um, he would transition more towards historical nonfiction. I think like historical romance would be kind of a genre that you could put him in. And I want you to like remember like the novel is pretty new in the late 1800s. Um, One thing that Francis is known for is this 1893 piece titled The Novel what it is, um, where he argues for subjective fiction with a dramatic narrator rather than kind of a here are the facts type Mm. of structure. Of the fiction topics Francis would write, things would include uh, sketches of like a daily life, of his time in India, of his time in Italy, a lot of historical things. Um, He would actually do a lot of research about like For example, he, in the 1890s, was in Boston at this glass blowing facility to learn how people blow 
glass for <laughs> a novel he was writing about glass blowers in Venice. Okay. Um, there was actually an accident at that factory, and um, he accidentally inhaled some pretty bad toxic fumes oh. uh, that caused significant lung damage. But yeah, historical romance and supernatural themes, these are the kinds of things that he would write about. Reportedly, his own favorite story is a novel he wrote in 1891 titled Khalid, A Tale of Arabia, where a genie becomes human and learns what it means to be human. Oh. The more fantastical and horror tales that he would write include short stories like 1885's The Upper Birth, 1899's The Dead Smile, and The Screaming Skull, published in 1908. Now, the first of that short story list, uh, The Upper Birth, is praised widely by other horror and specifically gothic horror writers like M.R. James. Oh, cool. However, I think Francis Crawford's best well-known work is his Saracenesca series of novels, starting with the novel of the same name, uh, published in 1887, and it's like a historical fiction of Italy and kind of going through the ages and following the Saracenesca family from aristocracy to his modern day mafia times. Mm. In this series, the first novel is Saracenesca, then Sant Ilario, Don Orsino, mm-hmm. and 1897's Culione. Yes, which is the mafia one. Yes. And is like the first mafia novel. Yes. And it's from like kind of before the mafia was an American thing, like back when it was just a, you know, Sicilian thing. Yes. Yeah. So it's very cool. Very cool. Francis Marion Crawford passed away at age 55 in 1909 from a heart attack. Doctors were able to trace the heart attack coming from complications of his long-term lung injury from that uh, glass factory accident Hmm. now in his lifetime he did see some of his novels adapted to the stage and he actually would write a couple of stage plays um so one novel that was adapted is 1890s a cigarette maker's romance adapted to the stage for 1902 um at the time of his death there was an adaptation of the novel the white sister coming out and that was remade in 1923 and 1933 And then his novel In the Palace of the King from 1900 was adapted in 1915 and then again in 1923. So I bring that up to say like Crawford's work was very popular. People would read it. People would watch it, I guess. Um, People were interested in his stuff. And Crawford had actually signed a deal with some filmmakers to have uh, reportedly the deal was that um, they would adapt 30 of Crawford's novels Jesus. into films after Crawford's the Crawford cinematic universe <laughs> over here. So after Crawford's death, um, his widow uh, actually sued the filmmakers about this deal. The filmmakers in question are producer Elting F. Warner, director Amerigo Serrao, who later would change his name to Arthur Varney. Hmm. And um, a man who in the New York Times uh, article that I found about this, he, he's listed as TBM Terhune. And the only TBM Terhune related name I could find is an actor who is known for being a whistling cowboy in the 30s. Hmm. And the reason she sued is for breach of contract because, you know, they said that we're going to adapt 30 of these novels with six coming before May 1921 um, with like money going out each time that they are adapting these right. to the family. And they hadn't even made one oh, yeah. this time. Yeah. So she sued them to be like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, because, you know, before Kevin Feige, like when people walked out with like a giant like sign with like 20 movies with dates, you know, for next year and said, we're going to make all these. Usually people went, "Uh uh-huh. Wasn't, you know, a thing that usually panned out. (laughs) I did look into the producer and the director's filmographies, and it does not appear that they made 
any adaptations yeah. of Crawford's work. Yeah. As for The Screaming Skull, you'll see a couple of different publication dates for it. That's because it was published as a short story in 1908, and then in the posthumous collection titled Wandering Ghosts, or uh, it might be known under its UK title Uncanny Tales, published in 1911. Mm. The Screaming Skull is a ghost story in the wake of a murder. Mm. So it follows Captain Charles Braddock, and it's a first-person narrator. He's inherited the house where his cousin, Mr. Luke Pratt, uh, was found dead. Um, possibly murdered, though it's unclear. He had bite marks on his neck. Mm. Not, not vampire bite marks, mm. but like a person bit his neck. Mm. Near his body was a box with a skull in it. Ooh. Now, before Luke died, reportedly um, his wife, Mrs. Pratt, had died mysteriously, and their only son was assumed dead in the Boer War. Now, as Captain Charles Braddock moves into the house and, you know, they don't know what to do with the skull in the box, so they put it inside the house. <laughs> you know, oh, it's a keepsake. You I don't put know. it on the mantle. Yeah, yeah, no, they literally do. Um, he starts to think he hears things in the house, like the skull, like whistling or screaming, hence the title. And he also begins to suspect that his cousin murdered his wife. Uh, and the method of murder that he suspects is by pouring lead in her ear while she slept. Ooh, um, apparently there were like, uh, he hears that there are these, um, news stories of women killing their husbands in this manner mm. and only being found out because, um, the coroner or whoever would find lead in the dead man's skull. Sure. Um, and so he begins to like, think he hears the skull on the mantle rattling around and basically it's uh yeah full supernatural and believes that it's the wife's skull haunting the house to find justice for her murder mm. um and then of course if you didn't get the connection there like the insinuation that the skull itself bit uh oh. luke and killed him that way huh i was suspecting that the answer was going to be that their son who went missing in the boer war came back to get revenge on his father murdering the wife and then killed his dad and left the skull of his mother there as like a dramatic poetic sort of statement that was where i thought that was going but sure i mean i haven't read it <laughs> yeah but you know i it makes sense that it's the more supernatural thing because it's a ghost story yeah um cool well i i don't know why they picked the Screaming Skull to adapt. But I suspect the reason why uh, John Newbel, who wrote the script for this film and produced it, knew about the Screaming Skull is because he was a pretty um, highly educated dude um, and probably knew of Crawford's works. Um, Newbel was born in American Samoa in 1920. He was the son of a Navy surveyor from Iowa and a singer from Samoa. He attended high school in Hawaii, and he studied playwriting under Thornton Wilder at Yale. Oh, dang. Yeah. During World War II, he worked in intelligence due to his knowledge of the Japanese language. And after the war, he returned to Hawaii and began writing plays that explored bicultural experiences like those of Hawaiian Americans and Japanese Americans, which were very well received in those communities. In the 1950s, he moved to L.A. to write for film and television, um, mostly television, beginning in 1954. As a TV and film writer, his works don't have the same, like, kind of, like, literary vision and, and thematic through lines that his plays do. Um, mostly when you look at his TV and film credits, he comes across as, like, a hired gun. Um, he wrote for many of the top shows of the 1960s and is probably best known for his uh, episodes of Wild Wild West. In the 1970s, he returned to Samoa, uh, lecturing on Polynesian culture and history and writing more plays, including the highly regarded and semi-autobiographical Think of a Garden. He passed away in 1992. Wow. 
Yeah, so this is a guy who, like, if you know him from stage plays, it's as, like, this, like, really thoughtful guy who wrote these, like, very um, poignant and interesting plays about, like, multicultural experiences between, like, colonizers and the colonized. Um, But if you know him from, like, film and TV, you know him mostly as a writer of, like, schlock movies (laughs) and, like, 60s sitcoms. Like, it's very, it's a very weird split there. I mean, he's clearly doing one to pay the bills and one to, like, express himself. Yeah, it's just weird because his career is plays, then TV and movies, and then back to plays. Sure. And so I wonder if, like, you know, he thought he was going to go do stuff like that in Hollywood, but the reality of Hollywood was no one was interested in, like, tales about Samoan Americans kind of thing. Yeah, And just ended up doing this other stuff. Anyways, the two men scraped together a minuscule budget to shoot the film, uh, which shot for six weeks at Huntington Hartford Estate. Six weeks is a long time. It is. And so I figure what's going on here is not so much that they took forever to to make it because of like meticulous Kubrick-esque perfection, but rather like... An Orson Wellesian uh, make Start, it, stop. Yeah. Yeah. Run out of money, get more money, yeah. start again. Yeah, exactly. Um, the cast was paid $1,000 each with the promise of a profit share after the movie came out. And the most notable of the assembled performers is actress Peggy Weber. So she was born in 1925 in Texas, and she wanted to be an actress from the time she was three. So um, she started appearing on stage around that time. She made her radio debut at age 12. Uh, She first appeared on film in 1946. In 1947, she was Lady Macduff in Orson Welles' version of Macbeth. Oh, maybe that's why her name is familiar to me. Her film work stretched from 1946 to 1965, and her radio career from 1937 to 2019, her television career from 1950 to 1982. And after she stopped doing like film and TV, she did a lot of voice work, Um, but she also turned to writing and directing plays, apparently somewhere in the like hundreds of like 250 plays or something like that. Oh, wow. She is now retired, age 96. Dang, you go, Peggy. So Nickel got Peggy Weber to do the film by telling her that it was a remake of Rebecca. Mm. Uh, Weber learned during making the film that she was three months pregnant, and so several scenes had to be rewritten, such as one where she was supposed to have fallen down a flight of stairs. Yeah, yeah. Cinematography for this film is by Academy Award-winning cinematographer Floyd Crosby, who is now um, definitely past his prime and whose work we've most recently seen in the films of Roger Corman. The film's musical score is based around the Dies Irae, and it is by composer Ernest Gold, who was born in 1921 in Vienna as Ernst Goldner, uh, but he and his family moved to America in 1938 after the Anschluss with uh, Germany due to their Jewish heritage. Gold grew up loving movie scores, especially the ones of Max Steiner, and so his ambitions were to become one, and those were realized when he was signed with Columbia Pictures in 1945. Over the next 10 years, he mostly scored movies Um, but in 1955 he began scoring the films of stanley kramer which led to his sort of prominence as a composer rising Uh, his best known score is for the film exodus um, which is about the like arab israeli war um, which came out in 1960 and he won an academy award for that score Other films that he did that would be noteworthy include The Defiant Ones, Inherit the Wind, Judgment at Nuremberg, and It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. And he passed away in 1999. So inspired by William Castle's life insurance gimmick on Macabre, Uh, Nickel added a gimmick to the film offering a free burial for anyone (laughs) who died of fright while watching The Screaming Skull. Yeah, they don't have the budget to actually do the insurance policies. Well, and also, unlike Castle, Nickel actually didn't make any real arrangements to support the gimmick at all. Yeah. 
there was there, he didn't contact any funeral homes or anything to make this a thing. Whereas like, yeah, Castle actually like had Did the thing. The full exactly. Thing. Yeah. The film's distribution rights were picked up by AIP, who released it on a double bill with Terror from the Year 5000. <laughs> uh, the film got dismal reviews and Weber claimed she wanted to throw up after seeing it. That's that's just morning sickness. Nickel was happy with it. He felt satisfied with the work and that it was sufficiently different from the films he'd been doing up to that point. He was happy. Um, AIP never paid out those profit shares to the actors um, as they claimed that the film never made a profit. Oh, no. The movie is now in the public domain um, due to the fact that it was never actually registered with a copyright office. (laughs) Uh, It has a copyright notice on the film but they never actually submitted it to a copyright office for registry. Well, it probably costs a fee to submit, right? Right, exactly. So it's sort of like writing, you know, original idea, do not steal on your movie. <laughs> um, regardless, this means that it's in the public domain. So it's it's everywhere if you want to see it. Um, it's on our YouTube playlist. It's on Amazon Prime. It's on Flixfling. It's on Tubi. Um, I'm going to recommend the version on our YouTube playlist uh, as being the highest quality one that I am currently aware of. And so that's how we're going to be watching it today. Being in the public domain, there's been a lot of different budget DVD releases over the years, um, but there has been a recent Blu-ray release from Screen Factory. Um, which is fully restored. Okay. Well, folks, hopefully you'll like stumble and it'll be over a copy of The Screaming Skull and you can watch it and enjoy it alongside with us. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude and when we come back, we will discuss The Screaming Skull from 1958, directed by Alex Nichol. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Screaming Skull from 1958, directed by Alex Nichol. And boy, that skull be screaming. (laughs) Yeah. Sarah, what did you think of this movie? I overall liked it, but it was a little too predictable. I mean, that's fair. That's fair. There's really only like one question in the movie and i think because we knew it was based on that short story we knew kind of what that what the answer to that one question was going to be what question is that is there a ghost or not ah so unlike all the prevailing opinion on this movie which tends to characterize it as like plan nine from outer space robot monster like level like bad movie mystery science theater schlock i actually really liked this movie i wouldn't put it in the same realm as those movies at all yeah i i don't know i responded really well to this movie um i really liked it i thought it did a great job at what it's trying to do the cinematography and the music are standouts which makes sense given the context setting but mostly I just really like what the movie's doing here, which is trying to scare you. Yeah. And I think it delivers well on that promise. Not to, well, okay. Not to the point of needing a free burial. No. No. Like that is the promise that they open with. Sure. But yes, it does try and succeed at scaring you. So why don't we talk about the story, which is much more complicated and involved than the short story this is like based on the short story in the same way that like the movie octopussy is based on the short story octopussy um a reference that will only make sense to my hardcore james bond fans out there but still why don't you tell us about it sarah well so full disclosure of course as i mentioned before i have not read the screaming skull but this feels like they mapped the screaming skull and gaslight um and rebecca and rebecca well yes 
So the film opens uh, with an, a shot of a funeral parlor and the narrator comes in and says, hey, the producers are going to give you a free burial if you die. Don't worry about it. Um, now we go into the movie and we see that um, there are two newlyweds, Jenny and Eric, coming back to Eric's mansion. He has been away for two years and they are coming to make their home here. Now, throughout the movie, we do learn details about why he left and all that. Um, he left when his first wife died in a tragic accident. And this first wife, her name is Marion. She grew up here with the gardener's son, Mickey, who is mentally disabled. Um, and he has stayed on as the gardener. When she died, the estate and everything went to Eric. The story of how she died is that it was raining. She was up in the greenhouse with Mickey. She goes to leave to come back to the house for something. And as she is walking back, it starts to rain harder. She slips or something, falls down the hill, slides and hits the base of her skull on some rocks that are near the pond. And she slips into the pond and basically like drowns. Now, with Jenny and Eric here, um, then Eric's nearby friends, Reverend Snow and his wife, Mrs. Snow, come and visit. And during that visit, we learn a little bit about Jenny's backstory um, with, you know, everyone talking. Jenny, she, she has her own tragic backstory. So she saw her parents drown in a boating accident. And eventually we also learned that she went to a mental asylum as a result of the trauma because she was having PTSD symptoms, um, was seeing and hearing things, that sort of thing. Yeah, survivor's guilt is awesome. her big deal. Yeah. Um, Eric sums this up as she's impressionable. So one night... Jenny awakes to a scream and Eric has, you know, he's gotten out of bed. He's not there. And so she runs through the house going like, where the fuck is this screaming come from? And she happens upon a portrait of Marion and there's water on the floor. And Eric explains it away as Mickey will sometimes come into the house. Um, and you know, he probably put this like water and this, um, lily pad thing here and the screaming you heard were the peacocks like it's all explainable yeah it, there are peacocks on the estate by the way <laughs> yes um and we do see that mickey does skulk around next evening jenny is alone in the house and she again awakes to screaming she goes to her window and she can't see any peacocks so she runs to like the other side of the house which happens to also be the room with the portrait and she goes and she does see the peacocks and she's like oh okay and then she looks at the portrait and it's like creepy to her and then the cabinet that's in the room opens and there's a skull inside now the movie does kind of do like um build tension by running back and forth whatever the result is that um, Jenny takes the skull, throws it out the window, and we see it like kind of bounce and almost like it acts as if it has a little bit of a life of its own. She heads back to her room and she hears someone knocking at the front door. And so she goes there and this person's like really persistent. Yeah. And like has a very regular knock rhythm. And she finally gets there and opens it and it's the skull. So she screams, goes to run away, and faints as the skull chases after her. Now, Eric finds her, brings her to bed, and he, when she wakes up, she's like, did you see a skull near me when you found me? And he's like, no, I, I think you're just seeing things, and it, it's fine. And she's like, no, I think I am seeing things like when I was in the asylum. I think I need to go back. And he's like, no, like, you're fine. And she's like... They said I was cured, like I shouldn't be seeing these things. Eric's like, okay, I think it seems like all of this anxiety that you're having really started once you came across that portrait of Marion. So let's burn it and you'll be fine. And Ben and I look at each other and we're like, I don't think that's how that works, man. I yeah. don't think 
Forcing your new wife to burn a portrait of your old wife is the best way to solve this problem. Well, and like, you know, Eric thinks it's Mickey who's been trying to scare her because Mickey liked Marion, so he might not like Jenny. And Eric also has some really, like, interesting views on how to help his mentally ill wife. Um, Very much of the, like, sort of confront your fear and just rub your nose in it until you feel better kind of school, I guess. But the whole thing with, like, her parents dying in the boating accident, too, is, like, it comes out that, like, she really hated her mom and wished her mom would die one day and then, like, got her wish and felt, like, super guilty about it afterwards and the painting of Marion reminds her of her mom so it's like wait so if her whole trauma is about how she wishes she hadn't killed her mom uh which she didn't do but you know that's the guilt speaking maybe making her destroy the painting of your dead wife that looks like her mom like this is not (laughs) this is not how you should be going about doing this yeah it's messed up so they go and do it (laughs) And um, they're in California, so they're like, okay, let's rake out the ashes and pour water on it because we don't want to start, like, one of the iconic fires of L.A. So she's raking through, and in the ashes is the skull. Oh, also, it seems like the portrait screams when it's burning up. But anyway, so there's the skull inside, and she's like, the skull, the skull. And Eric's like, there's nothing there, Jenny. What are you talking about? And so she faints. And then Eric picks up the skull because he's been a son of a bitch gaslighting his wife. Um, He goes and hides the skull in the pond and then goes back to Jenny and kind of wakes her up. And he's like, yeah, no, I think I think you need to go back to the asylum. Now, Reverend Snow comes by to check on everyone. (laughs) And that's when Eric shares that uh, Jenny in the asylum was suicidal. That he, he's worried that, you know, she's going to fall back into those thoughts again. Before leaving, the Reverend does speak to Jenny. And Jenny mentions to Eric that, like, the Reverend said that he, he believes that there's a skull and that um, once they're gone from the estate, he'll organize some search parties. And this kind of puts Eric on edge um, because he doesn't want the skull found. And Jenny's like, yeah, I think he was just saying it to make me feel better. But that pushes Eric to go look for the skull and put it in a different hiding spot. But when he goes back to the pond, it's not there. And he surmises that Mickey saw him put it there and Mickey stole it. So he goes chasing after Mickey. Um, Then we see that, yes, Mickey did indeed steal a skull. And he takes it over to Reverend Snow's house and uh, basically like is like, yeah, it hasn't been me this whole time i'm not lying meanwhile jenny goes to say goodbye to mickey mickey's you know hq is uh the greenhouse so she goes up there and she's like hey we're leaving like i i just want to say goodbye and i hope we can leave as friends and she goes to enter the greenhouse and that's when she sees marion's ghost coming right at her and so jenny like screams and runs screaming, flailing her hands all the way back to the mansion. We see Eric has uh, been like planting some things, like a noose in like a cabinet or something. He hears Jenny screaming and he's like, oh, okay, I will just go hide and catch her then. As Jenny runs past him, he grabs her and strangles her. Then Eric hears someone knocking at the door. And he's like, well, that's that's strange. Like, oh, fuck. Like, I just did the deed. Oh, no. So he goes. It's a very persistent knocker with a very regular knocking rhythm. So he goes and opens it. And it's the skull in Marion's ghost's face. And the ghost comes at him. He, like, freaks out, tosses a thing at it. The, like, form kind of explodes a, a little bit. Um, But then the skull keeps like chasing after him, both in terms of the skull itself and then also like visions uh, like superimposed over the film. Um, Coming right at you. Coming right at him, screaming its head off. And eventually it kind of chases him towards the pond where the skull then goes up and bites him on the neck. And that causes him to fall 
into the pond and he drowns. Reverend Snow and Mrs. Snow arrive to the mansion just as Jenny awakes. Uh, Jenny kind of explains, like, Eric tried to kill me. Oh, my God. Uh, while also, like, looking through the sundress that was left by Marion's ghost. And the Reverend finds Eric in the pond. Um, when Jenny asks, like, why would he do any of this? Uh, the Reverend says, your money, because you were rich, remember? Uh, and that's the end. Yeah, basically. Yeah. It is set up that Jenny has money. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I read a few reviews of this movie that acted like that was just something that was that came out of complete left field at the end of the movie. And I was like, no, they said that, guys. Yeah, but there's like a lot of um, let's give backstory and exposition in these conversations about the person who's not even in the conversation. And they happen frequently enough that like I think if someone was you know, watching this to get drunk to, you know, play a drinking game, they would easily miss it. Sure. There's a lot of exposition and it does get doled out like bit by bit, a little bit at a time and like not in order, you know, sort of like uh, when you play a survival horror game and you keep finding like journal entries and you have to piece together the story. Yeah. So I think like, Here's my hot take about people who think that this is like schlock and of the likes of Robot Monster or whatever. Uh, if you are coming to this movie expecting schlock and treating it like schlock and expecting a viewing experience of schlock, you're not going to meet the movie where it's at and give it like the benefit of a doubt of being able to explain what its story is. You're not going to like sit there and listen. Mm -hmm. If you're going to come to this movie and take it for lack of a better word, uh, take it as a movie and see like, how is it telling its story? Um, and laughing at like when the skull just keeps coming. Um, but also like enjoying the scares and all of that. If you take it as a movie, you won't miss this kind of exposition. So my hot take is people who call this like silly, dumb schlock uh, are creating a self-fulfilling prophecy of it being dumb, silly schlock. And I think, you know, one of the things that we've made clear over the years is we try to meet a movie halfway, like to give it a chance, like assume that you're going to see something that's trying its best that people put like time and effort into. Um, they put literally six weeks of their lives in here. Right. Like it, it's, like, give it the benefit of a doubt until it proves you wrong, right? Well, yeah. And also, like, we don't go into these movies purposely trying to make fun of them. Because I think if you come in and your job is, we're here to make fun of this, then, yeah, you're just looking for the stuff about it that's subpar. And you're going to magnify that for comedic effect, right? But, yeah, we, we try our best to, like, take things at face value with these movies. In the case of the Screaming Skull, we take it at bone value because it's a skull. Right. There are definitely, like, signs of the low budget everywhere. Um, sound is often a problem with the dialogue. They clearly didn't do any, like, ADR, and maybe their, like, boom mics weren't always very close to the cast because there's a lot of, like, wide shots outside. The biggest sign of the low budget also contributes to the sound problems. So they must have rented out a Huntington Hartford estate for the duration of the shoot. And there's no furniture in the house. Like they didn't shoot on sets. They shot in this real house and it's this, you know, big cavernous mansion, but it's got no furniture. It's got no paintings on the walls. It's got nothing. It's totally empty. And the story ends up justifying this with like, Oh yeah. Well, when Marion lived here, it was full of her mom's stuff. And so when her mom died, Marion wanted to get rid of all that stuff. We were going to buy new furniture for the place, but then she died. So we never got around to it. And then, you know, I left for two years, so there's still nothing in here. But because of that, there's nothing to absorb sound when people are talking in this place. So the sound is super echoey uh, when they're inside. And then when they're outside, you know, it's, there's wind and it's the typical biggest sign that you are a first time filmmaker or that you didn't know what you were doing or you didn't put the time and money in is your sound. Mm -hmm. The number one thing that's going to make your movie 
seem professional if it's your first time doing anything is investing in your sound. I will say that the scream sound effects were pretty effective. Um, it's more than a scream, and they do do something to make it like almost be mixed with the sound of a peacock screeching. Mm. Um, it's loud, and it's like, like I said, similar enough to something that sounds recognizable, but different enough that it's like strange and weird. Yeah, the sound recording on this movie is bad. The sound design is actually pretty good. Yeah. Um, there's lots of use of sound to cause jump scares from, you know, banging uh, window panes to like... Freaks through the house. Yeah. Uh, the window um, being tapped on by the tree. Yeah. There's just like lots of good stuff like that. I think a lot of the low budget aspects of the movie add these weird elements to it, but the movie makes lemonade out of it. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, I think that the cast mostly give good performances. Um, although one thing I noticed was that they're all like a little flatter at the start of the movie. Like I found the guy playing Eric, uh, John Hudson to be kind of flat and just like, Oh yeah. Okay. One of these B movie horror movie lead male stars, right? Very cardboard. Mm -hmm. But as the movie goes on and, you know, his like plot to gaslight his wife, like comes to light, like he gives a better performance when there's more dimension to it. Um, the guy playing the reverend seemed really flat at first, but I grew to really like his performance. Um, Mickey is played by the director mm -hmm. and he's weird and there's really no reason to make him disabled it's a red herring. Yeah. Um, and it's like, uh, I want to say mice and men mm -hmm. for like to bring in that trope. And it's, it's, it just feels so unnecessary. And it's like, yeah, no shit. It's a red herring. Like I've seen enough of these. Yeah. It's, it's done to other him. Yeah. Right. And I think that if anything, othering him to suggest that he's the bad guy in a red herring almost makes him too much of a red herring. Yeah. Because you're like, oh, well, then it's definitely not this guy because you guys are screaming that it's this guy so hard, <laughs> you know? It also feels like, um, because he, he was an actor before he was a director, <laughs> it just feels like he is patting himself on the back for this performance. Because, like, I just think of, like, when an actor's, like, wanting accolades, it's like, oh, I'll play someone who's, like, completely different from me. I know I'll play a mentally disabled person and get all the accolades. <laughs> right. It does have the feeling of like, we know that Alex Nichol, you know, worked with the actor's studio and like was involved in that whole method movement when it was first coming about. But he also like, isn't Marlon Brando. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like he also like, like, like nobody, like nobody fucking knows who Alex Nichol is. Yeah. Like, he did a bunch of small roles in a bunch of random movies. Um, his role in The Man from Laramie was as like a psychopath. It definitely feels like the kind of role that an actor wanting to show off would write for himself. Yeah, um, but exactly. It's, but, but you know that it's still small enough that it doesn't feel egotistical because you're also the director kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, it. so it really rubbed me the wrong way. Um, that being said, they don't do anything like... Uh, heinously terrible with mickey's portrayal no no and you know the fact that he turns out to be innocent is good um but yeah you're right like there's nothing that uh malicious yeah in what's going on the way that the cast is kind of flat at the start but i really grew to like them through the movie makes me think that this was shot in sequence and just like as people got more comfortable with their characters they got better at what they were doing people got more to do yeah, as well. true. Um, but I do think Peggy Weber is the standout of the cast. I think she gives a really good performance with a character who's been written with a lot of like intentional psychological complexity, who has to go through a lot of different emotions throughout the film and needs to give us, you know, a convincing rising emotional arc of becoming more and more harried. Um, she's a great screamer. Yeah. Really good scream. Really good face when mm. she screams, too. Yeah, absolutely. And um, she also 
looks fantastic in a nightgown, which the movie definitely wants us to know. Yes. Um, what's really interesting about Jenny's portrayal, capturing her on film, portray- I guess portrayal is the best word, is um, <laughs> the movie is leaning into that TNA with mm-hmm. horror. Um, she literally gets undressed in front of the camera. But when she's getting undressed, it's during a sequence that has like these long stretches of like watching her be scared. And we're very focused on her face, um, even outside of this sequence of like, what is she looking at? What is she hearing? And there's just something like, I don't know if we've seen a movie that takes someone's perception of what's going on around them. So like deliberate in the construction of the movie like something about this feels different they did a really good job of recognizing that like the key to showing her sort of descent into horror was making sure all the little stuff was built up so the sound design stuff um you know one of the things i said about making lemonade like having this big empty house they use that to create a lot of atmosphere Um, They use that to make sounds that echo weirdly. It has that feeling where like you can really spook yourself out in a big empty house. You know, if you've ever slept in a bedroom the night after you've moved in and you haven't unpacked anything, so there's just like nothing in the room and suddenly every sound is magnified and you're in a new place. So everything's weird. You aren't used to the shadows yet or how the house creaks. The TNA is... I don't want to say it's subtle because it ain't. It's really not. Um, you know, she looks great, but I don't know. There was There's something about the way that, like, the movie creates an intimacy between us and Jenny um, in terms of, like, identifying with her and her perceptions. Um, I was really glad that she turned out not to be dead. Yes. Um, because when... Eric first strangles her like I kind of thought that was it for her and I knew that the ghost was about to take its revenge upon Eric and so therefore it's you know that that would be fine in a way Jenny being dead it's like oh yeah but he's gonna get you know his just desserts or whatever but we'd seen her suffer so much through the movie that I really didn't want it to end with her dying and I'm really glad that it didn't It does end with her literally sobbing in Mrs. Snow's arms. Yeah, but, you know, it's still a horror movie, Sarah. Yeah, no, I'm just saying, like, um, for people who are like, oh, she doesn't even die. It's like, (laughs) well, she's, she's like, she was already scarred. Now she's even, like, more Double scarred. Yeah. But yeah, I think Peggy Weber gives a really good performance there. The movie has great atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Um, Floyd Crosby really takes an opportunity to hit it out of the park. Like, I don't know who's behind the lighting and the camera movements in this movie, but I'm going to give it all to Floyd because Nickel was a first time director. Yeah. There's some moments where it's almost like a perspective shot from the skull. Hmm. Yeah. As it's moving through the ground. Yeah. That, that was really cool. There's lots of cool spooky shadows in the house when Peggy's moving around it. Um, There's just like a lot of neat stuff being done here the music also contributes to the atmosphere a whole heck of a lot Mm -hmm. i really liked the music all throughout uh by ernest gold i mean we've seen that dearest Iray trick used by gerald freed in um the one where dracula comes to the suburbs return of the vampire no return of dracula return of dracula yeah but it still works here really well watching the movie as i said i think a lot of the twists I could see beforehand because, you know, I've seen Gaslight and I've seen movies ripping off Gaslight and I've seen Rebecca and I've seen these kinds of movies. So like I knew that it was going to be the husband who's doing things. I also knew that because you had told me the story of the short story and this movie takes barely anything from the short story, but what it takes from it is husband kills wife, wife's skull bites husband to death. Those are the things. (laughs) And so I knew and that there was a skull screaming. Yes. And so I knew that he was going to be the one who killed Marion. And therefore, I kind of knew he was going to be the bad guy at the end of the movie. The only question really was, is this all gaslighting or is there a real ghost? 
And it turns out the answer is both. Yeah. Um, and I think the fun part of the movie in retrospect is like thinking about what parts of what was scaring Jenny were gaslighting and what parts were actual ghost. Like I'm pretty convinced that when the skull knocks on the door and she opens the door and there's the skull and then it like flies at her and stuff. I'm convinced that's the real ghost because the real ghost knocks on the door in the same way at the end. But I was really stoked that like, not only was there a real ghost at the end, but that it manifested like as more than just the skull that we got like a ghost. And it's really clear that it's a ghost because it's see-through. Yeah. I think the special effects for the ghost were pretty good Definitely much better than I was expecting this movie to be able to do, um, especially because it's like running through the fields and they they do a pretty good job of making sure that the like leaves don't move when it goes through them. And I really like um, the look for the ghost uh, where she's in this white sundress with this like white uh, wide brim hat. And then they have like almost like a black veil over mm-hmm. the face. Yeah, she's really creepy and spooky looking. There are things in this movie that sometimes undercut the scares. Um, For me personally, they paced the movie well in that it's kind of slow at the start. But, you know, you get a slow build to each scare, each horror scene until the ending is this like constant assault. You know, it's one of those endings where literally like every time you turn around and open a door, there's the skull. Um, yeah, absolutely. And certainly that can get a bit comical at times. Like I know you were laughing when he opens the door to his car and the skull's there in the seat and turns towards him and opens its mouth like. Rah! Yeah, no, but I was like laughing in, in enjoyment, not yeah. laughing at. Yeah, it's pretty great, but it's definitely a lot. I think for me, the biggest unintentionally funny thing about the movie is they want her ghost to be coming right at Jenny, which I agree with as a decision. That's really scary. As a person who doesn't like ghosts, let me tell you, the ghost coming right at you really fast is scary. But they don't quite figure out that, like, the way to do that is to have her, like, float forward really fast. So instead, (laughs) whoever's playing the ghost, uh, which I could find no information about, but part of me just has this deep down suspicion. It's Alex Nickel. Um, whoever's playing the ghost is running full tilt, like an Olympic sprinter, like form running at Jenny, but she's wearing this like sundress and heels. And it's a little bit it's, comical. I love it though. It was good. Yeah. I enjoyed that. The ghost was real, that it was like a combination of gaslight and, real ghost um and i like that the the revenge comes at the end um for me this movie you know it has some pretty neat ideas it stumbles a couple times with the execution and ultimately that means that i feel like these ideas were done better elsewhere but overall like it's a good movie um and i think it's like kind of neat to be able to point to this movie to show the propagation of some of these like tropes or like features of how the genre is in this decade right because you can see this movie you know not only using stuff from these previous movies that we've mentioned but also like you can look at it and say hey gaslight didn't really have this much of ingrid bergman's tits in it (laughs) um you know so that's how you can really tell that this is a 1958 horror movie instead of you know a thriller from 1944 (laughs) so much can change in 15 years right um i was curious watching it to see if I could like pick up any evidence of the writer's like literary bona fides. And I will say that until we get to like some of the really creative stuff Floyd Crosby does with this movie, you can kind of imagine this movie as a play, like being done as a play. It's a very, I'm a playwright kind of script right down to everyone having very complex psychologies informed by tragic backstories that they're going to tell you all about. Yes. A lot of talking in this movie, very small cast. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's pretty centered on like one ish location. Right. Uh, which are all like play things. 
um, also low budget things, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad that, honestly, I'm glad the budget is so low that we do have to stay at the house the whole time. Yes. Because I think that ultimately makes the movie stronger than if like every time that Eric had to go into town, we actually saw him go into town. Like if there'd been a bunch of like back and forth from the town and stuff, that's the stuff that I always hate. Yeah, it would totally undercut all of the tension and atmosphere that it's been developing. For sure. So where would you like to rank this? Well, I've got a spot picked out, Sarah. Do you have oh. a range? Yes. Ish. I, yes. Let me take you on a journey. <laughs> I first was like, let's look at Macabre. Sure. Because this movie begins with riffing off of Macabre. Yeah, it's sort of like coming at the king in a way. Yeah. That movie is ranked at number 23, and right below that is Murders in the Zoo, which I, it's it's this high because it had a significant impact on me. This movie hits a lot of those same triggers, and it got me thinking, like, maybe I need to reconsider how high Murders in the Zoo is. Yeah, because Murders in the Zoo is undercut by some pretty, like, ugh, comic relief, which this movie doesn't have. Yeah. Um, so I was like, okay, put a pin in that for <laughs> future Sarah to deal with about murders in the zoo. Between The Screaming Skull and Macabre, I think Macabre is probably better because it has like a wider scope and still manages to build that tension. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, well, let's look down from here. And my eyes were drawn to I Bury the Living. Another, you know, very focused movie on one specific location. Mm. Um, I Bury the Living also has like a lower budget and stuff. And I was like, yeah, that that movie's really good. But boy, did it like ramp up in a way that like really had me going. Mm. Um, the Screaming Skull, because it was stuff I've seen before and done better elsewhere. Um, the twist was very expected about eric and mickey um that really kind of undercuts it for me so you know i continued looking down and then i drew my eyes to 53 back from the dead because mm. this is technically a woman comes back from the dead right right hey. yeah this is this is old wife back for revenge on husband new and new wife yeah, yeah yeah so um back from the dead I think it's pretty comparable to The Screaming Skull because on the one hand, Back from the Dead is very forward-looking, but the execution of it is limited by the budget. Um, a lot, like the climax happens in a curtained room, as we talked about, and it's, you know, it's kind of hampered by its own baggage. The Screaming Skull feels, it's reveling in these older ideas i don't want to say old-fashioned because I, I wouldn't really call it that but like it's reveling in like existing stuff not looking ahead like back from the dead but it's executing that a lot better um but i knew that screaming skull is going to be better than teen werewolf which is at 54 so that was my journey what is your spot okay so um i first thought of comparing this to the uninvited yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Mostly because of the fact that when we really sit down and think about it, movies from the U.S. with real ghosts are very thin on the ground. Yeah. One of the things I enjoyed the most about this movie was that there was a real ghost. Like, that really makes it different from Gaslight or Rebecca, where the twist, you know, is either, oh, it was all in your head, or, oh, the wife's actually been alive this whole time, or whatever, right? Comparing it to The Uninvited, I don't think it's as good. I think it's more fun, maybe. And the ghost elements are definitely more in there, mm -hmm. right? But I think The Uninvited as a film is probably better. Below The Uninvited is White Reindeer, which also is, like, as a film, probably better. And then at 47, there's Black Cat Mansion, which also has a real ghost, and that ghost is a cat. And so you really love Black Cat Mansion. Personally, I thought The Screaming Skull was better. Black Cat Mansion is good, but it's like a little messy 
Yeah. There's like a little bit too much going on. And I liked how focused the Screaming Skull was, even if that focus is the result of having no money. So my spot was 47, below Valkoinen Pura and above Bore Kaibyo Yashiki. Slotting that in there. I'm very happy with that. This journey I went on, I think you kind of get a feel for like my thought process with mm. this movie. Um, and I, I really like your explanation here. So I'm happy with this spot. Cool. So entering the list at the new number 47 is The Screaming Skull. Ah! From, um, from 1958, <laughs> directed by Alex Nickel. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You can also just go straight to screamscenepodcast.com now. Whoa! It will still take you to Tumblr. Uh, for now. For now. Um, there you can find links to all of the other episodes that we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Our horror-adjacent bonus episodes come out once a month on the last Saturday of each month. If you would like to help the show out, you can leave us a rating or a review on the podcasting service of your choice. Subscribe to our RSS feed so you never miss an episode. Or tell your friends about the show on social media or in person. Word of mouth is the best way for our audience to grow. If you'd like to support what we do here financially, you can do so by heading over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at all levels get to vote on what our horror-adjacent bonus episode is each month. Patrons at the $5 level get access to weekly bonus audio, and patrons at the $10 level get access to monthly horror or horror adjacent writing of a variety of kinds so that's patreon.com slash scream scene podcast so what are we watching next week ben well sarah i don't know anything about this movie but the <laughs> title is intriguing it's the curse of the faceless man didn't we see a movie kind of like that uh we've seen a movie called the man without a face it was a mexican film yeah where he had nightmares about the question yeah that's right that's right okay interesting well we will see you then creatures of the night bye bye